This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Field. Justin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Wheelworks. Vanna Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiff Nikos. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millwall. Walter Colbert. Joe Rush. Crystal Bayer-Vajic. Lawrence Harkin. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Robert Wicks. Spencer Conway. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Africa. One of the things we're going to cover is the country of South Africa as a destination for you to go for a motorcycle ride, be it on a tour or by yourself. After that, we're going to speak with Linda Butherstone-Bick, who went to Africa back in 1974, long before the internet and all the easy ways we have of planning trips. She rode solo around Africa. She spent about 15 months doing that, and she's recently written a book about those adventures, and she's got some really interesting things to say about it. We're also going to look at automatic chain oilers and what it can do for you and your bike and mainly your pocketbook. My name's Jim Martin. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Well, as far as destinations for a motorcycle adventure go, when Africa comes up, it's always considered an extreme. It's a place you go probably if you're more experienced, not always, but I mean, that that is a, a thought that goes through your head because there's a lot of problems as far as traveling around Africa. It's not as easy as other places you might go, like North America or South America. But South Africa, the country, is a place that you can go and visit with relative ease. It uh, doesn't have the same risks that um, many other countries in Africa do. Alex Jackson owns a motorcycle tour company that does trips in South Africa. And back in 1998, before he started the company, he went to South Africa and sort of fell in love. Now he's about to make his 50th trip back to South Africa. So in the meantime, he's learned a lot about it. He knows the country very well, and he certainly knows about motorcycling in South Africa. And so I'm going to talk with Alex about what he does in South Africa, but I'm also going to talk to him about non-guided tours. So we're going to get some tips here on South Africa as a motorcycle destination, whether you want to go on a guided or unguided trip. My name is Alex Jackson. I'm from the UK, a small town called Leighton Buzzard. And um, I run a motorcycle tour business uh, by the name of Cupstat Motorcycle Tours. 
uh, we run motorcycle holidays down in South Africa. Alex, great to have you here on the show. Thank you very much indeed. It's really real pleasure to be here. So you've traveled South Africa a lot. I mean, obviously you're a motorcyclist. That's why we're talking right now. And so, I mean, we'll, we'll skip over that part. But you've been riding South Africa in particular for a number of years. How did you get started with that? Uh, back in 1998, I first went to Cape Town with, uh, with a friend and hired a motorcycle, did some local riding, fell in love with the place straight away. The, the riding down there is like absolutely nothing I'd ever done before, certainly not in the UK. Um, and I, I, I just got the bug. I wanted to go back and back and back, and I'm just about to do my 50th visit to South Africa. 50th? Wow, that's a lot of time. So you're, you're basically going every year. Yeah, well, it's, as part of the job that I do now, it's, um, it's kind of compulsory. I, I run motorcycle tours in South Africa, uh, taking people to all the places I've been to. What is it about South Africa that makes it such a great riding destination? I love all things South African. Um, the roads are absolutely fantastic. The, the condition of the tar roads is so much better than the UK. Um, the gravel roads, a lot of those are better than the tar roads in the UK as well. <laughs> <laughs> They're very, very good condition. The scenery is is like everywhere else in the world. I, I get people coming on tour with me. They say, this is just like California. This is just like Spain. This is just like Scotland when we're riding around the country. And so we've actually come up with a saying now. We've got South Africa. It's a world in one country. <laughs> so what you're saying is, is diverse. There's there's so much there. I mean, Southern California and Scotland, I, I don't really see those as, as being a match there. So obviously you're seeing a bunch of different things. It's, it's, it is so diverse. We have beautiful green mountains. We have large desert areas, coastal regions with fantastic coastal roads that uh, run alongside. It is. It has to be seen to be believed. So if someone's going there, what's it like to travel there? Is it, is it a fairly simple process? You go there, you get a bike or you go on a tour and you can ride no problem? Yes, indeed. Yeah. As long as you have a, a full motorcycle license, and I think uh, uh, it's quite generic across the world now. Um, that once you've passed the uh, the full motorcycle license in any country, you you can just go and hire a bike, put your deposit down for the damage waiver, and um, just just head off. Or you can come on an organised tour where pretty much everything is done for you. And of course, obviously, uh, I know a lot of people are not keen on guided tours, but don't forget, uh, as guides, we've spent many 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 years finding out all the good places for you to go to. And of course, the places that maybe you shouldn't as well. So for those of us who don't know South Africa, give us an idea of the lay of the land and what there is to see. The, the, the Western Cape is, I would say, very, very similar to Europe. Um, it's very up and coming. There's no way you could describe South Africa as a third world country. You know, a lot of people have got this misconception about Africa. Um a lot of people say that South Africa isn't real Africa. You know, it's uh, it's uh, sometimes described as sugar-free Africa. You know, <laughs> uh, but um, it, 
in the Western Cape, you've got fantastic road systems. You've got high-end guest houses, hotels, everything else. When you start to move across the country, you become uh, more aware of the rural Africa, certainly on the eastern side, on the eastern Cape. When you go north from Cape Town uh, up towards Namibia, you will start going through the desert regions. And then, of course, you go to the uh, northeast of the country and you can go up into the safari districts. So what what about wildlife if you're off riding your motorcycle? Are you are the chances in South Africa? I mean, people always picture Africa, you know, loaded with wildlife. Do you find that there? The wildlife in South Africa, if we're talking of the, the elephant, the lion, um, and those type of uh, animals, they tend to be on reserves these days. There is no real, other than what you'd get in any other country with your your antelope, et cetera, that's not in a reserve. Pretty much all of the big game is in reserves these days. So if you're going to see that, you're basically going to a park and taking yeah, some sort sure. of tour with it. Do you do, sure. do you do that when you're on your trips? Um, we do. Uh, I certainly do because I've, for a number of years, I've also been working and training as a, uh, a bush guide. So uh, I, I think, I'm not sure, I, I wouldn't like to put money on this, but I think I've probably got one of the only tours that can actually take you into the or into certain parks and ride around amongst the animals. Oh, so you're actually on your bike. It's not like you're yeah, getting into sure. a vehicle. Wow, that's no. really neat. What sort of animals do you see from your bike? Uh, we can see hippo, rhino, giraffe, zebra, all of the antelope, um, buffalo. So the only places we're not allowed to go are those that have lion and elephant kind of for obvious reasons. <laughs> that's, in, that's in South Africa anyway. Um, certainly uh, a couple of years ago, I did a big ride up through um, Namibia and Botswana. And as I was crossing the top of Botswana through the Chobe National Park, just 55 kilometers, I rode through over 200 elephants. Wow. That's, uh, that keeps you on your toes, eh? Well, you mentioned that South Africa can be considered the sugar-free visit to Africa. And a lot of people would like that, you know, visiting a place that has so much to see and feeling safe as well. A lot of people really value their safety. <laughs> Go figure. But would South Africa give them a good taste or at least some sort of taste of what Africa has to offer? I think you can get a very good variety uh, of taste because re remember that from from the top to the bottom africa is very very different um especially going through central africa it there are lots and lots of different countries in africa i think a, one big problem um we we tend to face everybody thinks that africa is a country and it's not it's a it's a continent yeah you know with I, I can't remember how many countries, but um, there's a heck of a lot of countries there and they all have their own ways, their own cultures. Um, South Africa, as we know, uh, had a lot of European influence there. So, uh, yeah, it's it's got its African feel, but you can also feel at home from the European side and I guess uh, a lot of the guys from the, from the US as well. I think also people tend to not realize that it's a massive chunk of land covering... It's, it's a, huge, eh? <laughs> yeah, covering a lot of latitude. Yeah. And you're, and you're talking, like you said, there's a bunch of countries. I don't know, what is there like 58 or 60 or something like that countries? A lot of countries anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's... it's and and it's, like I say, every time you, you go through, just in South Africa alone, you know, you have 11 official languages, which is quite good when they put the subtitles on the news, on the TV at night.
in all of the languages. <laughs> you, you, can, you can't actually see the person behind the picture anymore. <laughs> So as far as travel in South Africa, I mean, you mentioned that you're looking at game on the game reserves. What about camping? Do you camp when you're out on your trips or, or can people go and camp there if they're going on their own? There are camps that you, you can go to. They are organized camps. Wild camping isn't recommended simply because people own land. You know, you can probably go to farms and, and, and wild camp there, but you can't really just go and camp in places these days, you know. Uh, there, but there are a lot of uh, official sites that you could go to. We particularly don't go to uh, to campsites because we do, we run fairly high end bike tours where people want the uh, the three and the four star guest houses. So when you're doing a tour, um, do you end up visiting cities as well? Is is that something people should be looking at if they're going to South Africa? Certainly, if you're coming to South Africa, you've got to go to Cape Town because Cape Town is such a beautiful city. To, uh, it, I guess most people have seen the iconic Table Mountain. Um, to have that nestled, with the city just nestled below it, and no matter where you are in the city, you just look up on this beautiful, beautiful mountain that's there. Um, we try on the tours not to go. We, we tend to meet in the cities where the airports are, and then we leave so we can get out and see the rest of the countryside. So what about off-road riding? Are there places that you can go and just um, ride? You mentioned the desert. There, Can you ride in the desert? You can, but um, they don't. Again, like I say, most of the most of the land is owned by somebody. Um, the same as uh, anywhere else where you might live, you you wouldn't go riding across a farmer's land. Um, but um, there are some fantastic tracks, roads uh, where you can go riding up through the mountain passes. The the gravel mountain passes are second to none, I would say. Well, let me ask what I would consider to be a telling question. What tires do you run on the bikes that you take on your trips? Uh, now, this, uh, that's, a, that's a technical question. Uh, <laughs> personally, I, I ride with um, Conti Attacks um, because that gives me good, good gravel riding and good tar riding um, for, the, for the tar passes. With the clients, with the UK, a lot of the clients that come out from here, we they haven't necessarily done any gravel riding because we don't really have gravel roads here. So we tend to put something like Mitre CO7s or something on on their bikes just to give them that little bit more confidence on the uh, on the gravel. So we're talking roads that are really in quite good condition, as you had already said. I, I was trying to find out what sort of dirt roads you might be getting into, but you're just talking basic gravel roads. So really nice riding, easy going. There's, if you want it more complicated, we can certainly take you there as well. But in general, um, the, the, the kind of routes we take with the, with the clients, bearing in mind they're on holiday and they, they're there to experience South Africa, um, we tend to stick to the flatter gravel roads. There's a few twisty uh, mountain passes we'll take them on, purely because we have some very, very cool places to stop on these roads. And it's a great experience. It's not too technical. I'm quite confident that uh, even novices can ride these roads. So do people on the trip have to ship their bike down and have a carnet to go on your trip? No, what we do, we don't actually ship bikes over for the clients. We actually use hire bikes when we're over there. Oh, so from a bike rental agency? Yeah, for sure. Although that if you do take your bike to South Africa, you will need a car. What do you think has changed or what has what sort of stands out for you as changed from 18 years ago when you started going to South Africa to now? 18 years ago, um, the changes of government and uh, the um, 
death of apartheid had not long happened. So I'm guessing if I look back now, I'm I'm seeing a whole bunch of young educated Africans coming to the front um, that are actually getting involved in business now, whereas at one time we would have toured around and pretty much everywhere we went would have been predominantly white-owned. Now we're seeing uh, there's a lot more young African business people come through, and I I think it's absolutely fantastic, personally. And and everything else is sort of the same. I mean, your roads and all that is is pretty much the same. There's if you go to the more rural areas, you will find the roads are uh, in not so good condition. Uh, depending on which province you're in, depends on how much money they get filtered down to them. The Western Cape does very very well. It's a major tourist uh, attraction down in the Western Cape, which is around the Cape Town area. So they invest a lot of money in it. When you go out to the Eastern Cape, maybe, you know, it's not such a strong tourist attraction. So uh, they, they don't necessarily get the same sort of money to, to uh, repair their roads. I think for a lot of people, Africa is synonymous with a cultural experience. Would you say you get that in South Africa, that cultural experience? Culturally, um, certainly... Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, South Africa actually has three capital cities, uh, being Pretoria, Joburg, and uh, Cape Town. Um, You've got a lot of culture around the Eastern Cape, where um, Madiba, uh, Nelson Mandela, that's where he was born up that side. So there's a lot of history goes on there. There's things like uh, the Nelson Mandela walking trails these days, where he used to um, walk from one village to the next. You can go on those those sort of things. There is the cradle of humankind, which shows you how um, man developed and, and, and came from Africa. Uh, that's up in Johannesburg. So there's, there is quite a bit to get involved in. Uh, certainly tours, township tours are becoming very, very popular these days um, where you can go on a guided tour into the uh, what used to be called the shanty towns and see how the people live. And I have to say, if you go in there, you'll be very, very surprised. But uh, sure, the shacks look run down and everything else, but the, the smiles on the people's faces is something to be experienced. What other attractions would you say people shouldn't miss when they're visiting South Africa? Oh, I shouldn't miss the uh, the motorcycle safari tour that I do, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think depending on what you're going for, there's some fantastic uh, big game fishing. There's uh, an awesome uh, shark diving experience where you get into a cage and uh, they lower you into the water and they, the sharks come around the cage with the great whites there. Personally, I'll go in if they put the shark in the cage. I'm just going to say, I'm not sure as I'm, I'm really into that bait thing, but I can see the, the, the <laughs> no, thrill. No, I think you're bait. <laughs> <laughs> Something that happens every year down on the south coast on the Western Cape side, there's a small town called Hermanus, and every year they have a whale festival. Now, in the darker days, uh, Hermanus was actually a small whaling town. And the reason it it was a whaling town was because at certain times of year, the southern right whale come into the harbour 
and I've actually stood on the main road looking out to sea there, maybe only 100 metres away, up to 130 whales. It has to be the best land-based whale washing centre in the world. That's certainly something to go and see. And then, of course, uh, the right whales, um, they were they were hunted so extensively because, uh, one, they were easy to hunt. They floated when they were killed. That That's was a right. huge thing. Yeah. They, they called them the right whale because they said it was the right whale it to kill. It was the right whale to kill, yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah, I, 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 I think you probably get uh, probably the northern right whale up where you are, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, of course, the other things, depending on what you're really attracted to, if you were to go up, the west coast of South Africa towards Namibia in, I think it's July, then up through Namaqualand, the flower season comes out. It is unbelievable. Just carpets and carpets of beautiful wildflowers. Wow, that'd be a sight. What's the season? When is the best time to go visit South Africa? You can go to different parts of South Africa all year round. Uh, it's, strangely enough, it seems to have two weather systems. In, the, uh, in their summer which is probably November through to the beginning of April, um, down on the Western Cape, down Cape Town end, beautiful, beautiful sunshine up to maybe 40 degrees at some days. Um, if you go further north to the uh, Kruger National Park area, which is on the border of Mozambique and going up towards Zimbabwe, then you're going to be getting very, very wet at that time of year. Because Although it's super hot still, it's the rainy season. So if you want to go on safari, for instance, then you should maybe go August and September when it's the dry season up there. It's not a great time for the animals, I have to say. It's uh, There's no food, there's no grass, there's hardly any water around. But it's, it's the best time to go and view the animals because now you can see them. Because there's no vegetation or less vegetation. Exactly, yeah. yeah. If you go during the wet season, the grass is a meter high. And uh, you, you know, the animals are there. You just can't see them anymore. So the wet season is when? The wet season is uh, November. The rains usually come in November and go through to March. Mm, how wet of a wet season is it? It's pretty pretty wet. Like yeah, England wet? Oh, much wetter. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. It's hard to believe, eh? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I'm, dissing the UK there. No, I mean, no, no. It's cool. I'm sitting here looking at it pouring down right now. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is our summer now. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to go and you're not going to take a guided trip, if somebody wants to go on, on their own, yeah. you can pick up a rental bike. That's not going to be a problem. You can travel around, um, and you better be planning to stay at either the organized campgrounds or, or some sort of hotels, etc., yeah. to have a good trip. Yeah, um, certainly there's some fantastic budget uh, backpackers' places that you can stay in, and, and some of the farms actually rent it they have bunk houses there so you, there's no real need to go camping you know um, you can get very very cheap accommodation and it's usually really really good quality as well well let's talk about value for the dollar for a minute i understand that south africa is a um, a great place to make your dollar go further it's expensive to get there but uh, a good place to make your dollar go further coming from most countries at the moment the um the rand rate is uh Unfortunately for South Africans, it's not it's not great, but the rand is so high. Uh, for instance, let's say eight years ago when I started the business, we had ten rand to a pound. Today it's twenty one. Oh wow! Okay, well that's good for tourism for them. That's got to be bringing people in. It's it's bringing people in, um, 
but obviously for the locals trying to buy things, it, the prices increase. Yeah, you know because of the import, everything they're having to buy things from abroad. Uh, therefore, they're having to pay more for them uh, overseas, and um, that's causing some hardships. But he's done this before; it's spiked right up. Let's hope it uh, it comes down and levels off again. Yeah, that's quite a difference, ten to twenty-one. Wow. Yeah. So, if you're going out for dinner, what would you expect to pay for dinner? God, I can only tell you in pounds at the moment. But sure. uh, if um, if I went out and had a T-bone steak, then I I wouldn't expect to pay more than seven pounds for it. I'm paying less than a pound for a beer. And I think fuel at the moment is something like 60 pence a litre. Oh, wow. So yeah. uh, how about a bike rental? Bike rentals, uh, that's, that's difficult because it does change depending on what bike. But um, that they are never cheap. Uh, you, you're going to be looking probably about 60, 60 to 80 pounds a day for maybe up to a F, F800. Oh, so you're probably paying going price, I guess, in other places. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if they take a tour, though, I know with tours, there's some huge advantages there because, one, you don't have to organize the whole thing. But, two, you also have that, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for 18 years. You can know all kinds of places that they go, et cetera. So if they're going to do a tour, what do they have to do? They basically just have to worry about their visa, and that's it. Yeah, depending on where they're coming from. If, if For instance, if you come from the U.K., you don't need a visa. You automatically get a uh, 90-day visitor's pass coming from the UK. From the state side, I'm not so sure. Um, but literally, if you do need a visa, once that's sorted out, you just um, turn up and uh, we're on the uh, we're on the road. The way you do it, do people bring their gear or what are you supplying? Yeah, because I'm quite a small business. Um, I One, I don't have the facility to store the amount of uh, variable riding gear that would uh, be needed for the clients. If you imagine, I, I, I take no more, uh, my groups are no more than uh, eight bikes out in one go. But that still means I've got to have eight riding jackets, eight sets of pants, boots, etc., and then varying sizes. So it's just really not practical. Mm. And besides that, if you're taking your own gear, it's something you're used to. I mean, um, exactly. nothing would be worse yeah. than wearing a jacket or something you find is digging at your armpits after day two. Yeah. I always wonder about that. And I, I imagine, like, if you're stuck doing it, I can see doing it. But I know for me, I, I'd want my own gear. It, it just yeah, I think it, the... it's a comfort thing as much yeah. as anything else. Yeah. Plus, also, you don't know about how well the other, other gear has been looked after. Alex, thank you very much. Jim, it's been a real pleasure. Um, thanks so much for the opportunity to uh, come and chat to you. I've been speaking with Alex Jackson, a specialist in motorcycle adventure tours in South Africa. And, you know, it sounds like a a good destination, really. I know it'll be expensive for a lot of us to fly there, but once you're there, the dollar exchange right now is making it real value for the money as a destination to go ride your motorcycle. And from what Alex is saying here, it sounds like an incredible place to ride. So lots to see, lots to do, and you might want to think of tacking some things on or before your trip. Now, if you're interested in seeing the trips that Alex offers, he's at um, Capstead Matt. That link will be in our show notes as well. Some photographs of Table Mountain that Alex was talking about there. What a gorgeous site. You've got to see these photos. That'll be on our website with the show notes for this episode. There's also the tourism website for South Africa, which is just southafrica.net. Quite a nice site, and it's got a lot of stuff on there. There's sort of a a bit of an eye-opener for you if you don't know or are unaware of South Africa as a destination, especially for adventure.
We're going to take a quick break and then come right back and speak with Linda Butherstone-Bick about her new book, Into Africa with a Smile. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. You know who they are. They're Aerostitch. And that's a company that gets behind Adventure Rider Radio. And you know what? We're proud to be associated with them because they make great products. And that web address that I just gave you using the forward slash ARR, and of course, you know, that lets them know that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's going to get you 10% off your first purchase or if you're a repeat customer, free shipping on your next order. And you know what? I've been trying Aerostitch gear recently, and I've only had it for a short time, but I'll tell you what I'm trying is the 81 pants, which I'm really falling in love with. These things have zippers all the way at the sides, so that when I go to put them on, I don't have to worry about having my boots on, and I absolutely love that. I've had other pants like that, but none of them have quite the fit that these ones do. These are the nicest pants that I've ever had for riding my motorcycle. So check them out. They're the 81 pants. Aerostitch makes top quality gear. You've got to go there and check it out. I've told you before about their catalog. You can get their catalog for free by downloading it on the internet, or you can order it, and I think it costs you $5 or something like that, and then that's refunded on your first purchase. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Linda Boutherstone-Bick has been traveling the world for over 50 years on a motorcycle. She's written three books about her adventures, the newest one being Into Africa with a Smile. And this book is about her trip to Africa back in 1974, a time when few people were riding a motorcycle through Africa as an adventure vacation. She traveled around for 15 months, experiencing numerous breakdowns, and she even ended up catching malaria at one point. And despite all her setbacks, she still managed to keep a smile on her face. We had Linda Bitherstone-Bick on our show some time ago. And Linda, it's great to have you back. Thank you very much, Jim. It's great to be back. We're talking today, well, we're talking about Africa, for starters, on this episode. But, but we're also talking to you about your new book out called Into Africa with a Smile, which has been out for how long now? Um, it came out just before Christmas. It, it was uh, just about managed to get it um, online before I went overseas. So it's already up for sale. It's on uh, Amazon, I understand. It's available as a print and as a Kindle version. Yes. And and the name, my name that I use on the on the book is Linda Boothestone. So um, uh, you can look at it for it under Linda Boothestone, Into Africa with a Smile. Yeah. Because you're Linda Boothestone Bick with a hyphen. Yes. So, Linda, what is the book about? Well, I... I went down through Africa in 1974-75. It was a 15-month trip it took. Um, in those days, there wasn't any information like there is now. Um, there, were, there were no maps. The, I'm sorry, there were maps. It was Michelin map. But there were no books like, um, what do you call, Lonely Planet or Rough Guide. When I went to the, the AA, the Automobile Association in, in England, which is one like the RAA over here, um, and it's through them that you actually get your carnet de passage, and I said, I want to ride down through Africa on my motorbike. Can you give me some information? They just said, oh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the way I got around this was I found there were some companies that go down by trucks. They go down by four-wheel drive trucks and they, they get about 20 passengers to pay. And they go usually, well, they went, and I presume they still do, some of them, um, from England at that stage just down to somewhere like Johannesburg. Um, and then they sold the truck and they'd start all over again. And I, I found somebody who had his own private small business who, who did the same thing. And he was, um, he was very helpful. And it was through this guy, Terry Wilkinson, who ran his own company, that I, that I found the information that I needed. And they actually, I started off uh, with them uh, for a short time um, because they were so helpful. He was so helpful. And the people, one of my friends, Jackie, who was in my last book, she actually went on the truck with the other passengers. So really, that was how I started off. Well, so many different things happened in Africa in those days. There weren't any other um, motorcyclists, travellers then. Uh, I, I met a couple of other people that were on bikes, but they weren't um, kitted up, you know, or anything. Um, so really, it, it was a completely different experience from how it is today. Well, hang on, you're getting way ahead because there's so many things yes. I want to talk about with that because <laughs> you just mentioned about, you know, going before there was books like Lonely Planet. You missed a whole step there before the internet. Yeah, of course. Yeah, before the internet. Yeah. Everything's done with the internet nowadays. So when people are yeah. researching things, we have so much information. So one of the things that interests me already, and I haven't had a chance to read your book, but I'm already intrigued because this is back to a time that is, is long since gone. I mean, you can't plan things nowadays. You can't ignore the internet. You, you can't just you know, bury your head in the sand and say it's not there. But it was a completely different world when you were getting ready to go. First of all, why did you want to go to Africa? What was the, the draw there? Especially back in the day, as you said, no adventure motorcyclists. People aren't riding motorcycles around. Here you are, uh, and you want to grab a motorcycle and ride to Africa. Why? What, what brought that on? Um, well, I just come back from um, <clears throat> about three years in tra uh, traveling around Australia. That was my last book, um, Three Wandering Poms. Um, I just gone around Australia, you know, um, when in the days where there weren't that many motorcyclists um, doing this sort of thing either. And uh, I came back to I came back to England because my father was very ill, um, and, and in fact he did die the following year. Um, but I was already thinking, where can I go next? <laughs> I just really, where can I go? And actually, I, I, I was going to come to Canada, Canada and the States. But what happened was it took so long for, um, for us to get my mother settled uh, down again, you know, and looked after and uh, on, back on the road again. Um, she, um, by, that, by the time we'd got her settled, it was already, the season was too, <laughs> it was coming into winter. It would have been a nightmare <laughs> going to Canada in the snow. <laughs> So I thought, well, where else can I go then? And I thought, well, I'll, um, yeah, Africa should be warm enough there. <laughs> I'll go to Africa. So that's why I decided to go to Africa. And uh, and I had to make preparations, of course. You know, I had to, it took a few months. And I had already been saving and I had already got my BMW. Canada to Africa, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's night and day, Linda. You, and you I say know, it just well, sort of you know. <laughs> off the cuff, like, you know, well, I wasn't going to go to Canada because it's winter, so I go to Africa. I mean, they're to two totally different trips, and certainly back then. Was there not enough information to make you realize how big of a decision you were making? No, there wasn't any information. <laughs> I, I, I don't, when I go places, I, I really I really like to have surprise. <laughs> I'm not really interested in doing all this planning. 
obviously you have to do a lot of you do have to do a certain amount of planning you have to have inoculations you have to get visas um, you have to have some idea of, of um, how far it is between petrol stops and things like that but um, I, you have to go with the flow because as I say in in volatile countries like um, Africa or even Asia or even Europe at the moment um, when places are, are very changeable you, you just don't know what's going to happen and you you plan as much as you can. You have to have a, re a reliable bike. Mine didn't turn out to be very reliable. <laughs> but you have to try and have a reliable bike. You have to try and kit up for it. You know, make sure you've got panniers. Make sure you've got a big tank. Make sure you've got nice handlebars and things that you can um, manage it. You know, you've got to, you, can, you can look at that sort of thing, but you don't know what's going to happen on, on, on the road because um, things change so much. Um, so really the best thing to do is just to like to go like with me into Africa with a smile and just hope for the best. <laughs> what bike did you have and what year did you go? Right. Well, I went in 70, 1974. I had a 17-year-old. It was a 1957 R50 BMW. 1957? Um, you said that wasn't very reliable for you? <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, um, I, I, did, we, I did do work on the motor before I left, but um, I forgot about changing the suspension, which was the first thing to go. Um, because, I'd for, you know, you think, oh, BMWs, they're so reliable. <laughs> and you forget that things wear out. Um, well, and the fact that you bought a, I mean, it was an old bike. It was, what, 18 years old when you bought yeah. it. So, I mean, you've, yeah. you're already getting an old bike that you're going to take on a massive trip. When you do this, any of your trips, do you prep your bike all over? Do you go all over it and pull everything apart and make sure everything's working right? Or do you just sort of slap things on it and go? No, uh, well, um, as I say, a, a friend of mine helped me um, set the bike up. I knew that um, um, I knew that I would... I'd had problems with with the steering on those those old BMWs. We used to call them BM wobble U's, you know, because the <laughs> the bearings go on the the L's forks, and you can go into a horrendous tank slappers, which was talk, spoken about in my last book actually. And um, anyway, so I made sure that all the bearings in were were set up. I made sure I had a, a good clutch because I knew I'd be going through sand, and I actually took a spare clutch plate with me. In case you know that I, I burnt that out, um, and I made sure um, that I had spares with me for um, valves and things like that. Um, and the engine was going great when I left. <laughs> Clearly, by um, your laugh, I can tell that it didn't yeah. keep going that way. But what was your what was your route when you're planning? Did you just say that I'm, I'm going to Africa, and, and then, like you said, arrive with a smile, or did you did you have a planned route? You know, countries you're going to go into and out of. Oh yeah, well you do. I mean, at that time you could go down through Algeria. It was a, it was straight through going from Morocco into Algeria, going down through the centre. Um, it turned out that um, Ted Simon was planning his uh, big tour at the same time, and he left just a little bit before me. I think he left in '73. I was planning to leave early '74, and he had a write up in the paper on you know what he was taking with him and where he was going, and he was going to go down the east side of Africa, whereas I had already planned to go down the centre. Um, so I had an idea roughly where I was heading, um, because Terry, the guy that had the truck. He had already he'd been doing this trip for a couple of years with his with his truck and he he told me which was the route that was open at the time because they do change uh, a few years later you couldn't go down through Algeria it was closed 
But at the time, you could go down through the center. You could go straight through the middle of Algeria and then um, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, um, sort of straight through the middle. And that's how I went. Um, Did you know Ted Simon was going at that time? I, I saw an article that he had, he had a spread, because he was writing, I think he was for the Times, he was writing, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. He was writing for the Times. So he had an article with a, with a picture of his triumph and all his stuff that he was taking on his bike. But, I mean, he wasn't famous then. He was just a, um, a newspaper reporter that was going on a trip. And I sort of thought, oh, well, there's another person doing a bike trip, but he's going in a different direction and I probably won't see him, which I didn't. So actually. you just sort of glimpsed at it and, and, and it went by the yeah. wayside? yeah. Interesting. And you're still out here, right? I mean, you, you just came back from a trip just now. Yes, I just came back from South America. Yeah. How old are you? Um, like, oh, wait, can I ask that? I don't know. I, did I just cross the line there? I think I did, didn't I? But I know you celebrated a birthday when you're in South America. So yeah. surely you're not going to tell us you celebrated a birthday, not tell no, us how I'll old tell you are. You, I'll tell you. No, I was determined to have my 60th birthday I had up in the Himalayas on my last trip, my big overland trip on my DR650. I remember And that, I had yeah. that up in the Himalayas and uh, that was great fun. And I thought, well, for my 70th, which was last November, I, uh, I, have, to, um, I have to be somewhere equally as exciting as, as um, the Himalayas. So I decided I'd go and visit my friends in Sucre in Bolivia who are musicians. And I, I decided I'd go and visit them. And there was a bit of a funny story to that. Um, Lenin, who is the guy that's on Facebook, he, he wanted, he's a, a really good, um, good guitarist. And his brother plays the charanga and the, and the panpipes. And I've played with them in Spain. Um, Lenin's on Facebook. And I said, Lenin, I'm coming to visit you for for my 70th birthday to play music with you in Sucre in Bolivia, where you, in his hometown. And um, he wrote back and he said, oh, you're going to suffer from the altitude. It's really high and, you know, you'll be sick. So I said, well, Lenin, I'm coming to visit you for my 70th birthday in Sucre in Bolivia on the 21st of November on my motorbike. And he wrote back and said... Um, oh, the roads are really bad, you know, you won't be able to make it on a motorbike, it's too dangerous. And I wrote back again and said, Lenny, I'm coming on the 21st of November for my 70th birthday on my motorbike to play music. And then I I didn't really hear anything. And a couple of weeks before I got there, I I actually wrote to him again and said, Lenny, and I realise I've been a bit pushy here. You know, I've been, I've I've also presumed that you want me to come. But if you really don't want me to come, if it's a problem for your family, um, then don't worry, you know, I'll go somewhere else. And then, of course, he wrote back immediately. He said, no, we've made the birthday cake. My mother's looking forward to meeting you. All the family are looking forward to it. So I went. That was where my 70th birthday was. So that's it. That's the long answer to your short question, how old are you? (laughs) So you just turned 70. Linda, what do you plan on being when you grow up? I'm not going to grow up. That sure ended that one very quickly. So um, back, back to Africa, the subject of your book there. So you just went on this open-ended journey. Did you have a timeline on it? No, no. It was, it was just a matter of, um, um, yes, how long it, however long it took and how much, you know, how, however long my money lasted out for. I mean, fortunately, I was down in South Africa or in Rhodesia, as it was called then, um, to... Um, I got a job, you know, I could get a job um, in Rhodesia, so I, I, I padded out, and then I went to South Africa itself, and I got a job in South Africa, so I could padded out the, you know, the, the money situation. 
but it, it, I didn't have I didn't have any idea of how long it was going to take me, and it didn't really matter. What you're limited as as everybody, every adventure motorcyclist knows when they're planning these long trips, you're limited by the visa, the times that you know how long you can get your visas for, and you're limited by the climate and the changing of the seasons and which countries you is not a good idea to travel, you know, at certain times of the year. So you're limited by that. And um, and that's how I, I actually think my trip was very short. 15 months was was a short trip. But um, but given the circumstances, given the, the time, um, the climate and the visa lengths, that was really what I had to do it in. When you say short, uh, 15 months, you mean just you didn't have the time to see it? Well, this plenty of places that you'd like to have stayed longer um but then you know if you'd if you'd stayed another month or so for example in the congo um then you're you're blocked in there because of the wet season and it's really difficult to get out so you'd have to stay for another three or four months before everything you know dried out again and then the visa might not be you know you might not be able to get another visa because of where you are and uh that's that's that sort of thing is is difficult but i i saw a lot and i think i made I think I made the best of it, um, and uh, I enjoyed it. Um, but there's there's things that say you or you always think something you could have done differently. But I had a good time. Had you been to Africa before? Or was that your first time? Oh no, it's my first time. Yeah. So what was that like? If you can go back, you've just written a book. You've obviously went through all your memories and notes and things to to come up with it. That must have been incredible. I mean, you, you said you were going to Canada, and then you ended up going to Africa. That's a huge culture change, to say the least. Well, <laughs> um, there's lots of. I mean, Africa is a lot of different countries. Uh, it's got a lot of different cultures. Uh, as I say, climates. Lots of, yeah, very, very different things happen. And I'm pretty adaptable. And uh, and also I'm musical. At that time, I mean, one of the things that helps me much more now is that I can now play the tin whistle. I couldn't in those days. I could only just sing and have my lagophone with me, which your know, lagophone is a, a stick with bottle tops on it. Um, yeah, I had my lagophone on the back and, and I'd sing. But um, I think now... Um, with the whistle, I can I can get into playing with um, with other other cultures much more because people are attracted to music no matter what. And if I start playing the whistle somewhere, then I get all these crowds of people around. Um, and I think that's that that helps. Um, so I'd always travel with a musical instrument. For those who don't know your story, um, you're playing folk music. You're you're really into yes. that. You go to different places. You seek that stuff out when you get to a new area. Yes, I do. And I, I, I write songs about the areas I go to as well. So, yeah. And, and the neat thing is, just like what you said there, you meet a lot of people through it. Like it's sort of a universal language. You've got something where you connect with people immediately. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. What was significant about Africa? What, what really took you? In other words, significant? Well, <laughs> the mud. <laughs> oh, well, that was the most memorable thing about Africa. But uh, significant. Well, hang on a second. Wow. You, you just said the mud was the <laughs> most memorable thing there. Is that a good memory or a bad memory? Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's good for the complexion. <laughs> I'm not talking about wearing mud, Linda. <laughs> well, I'm I did wear about, it. <laughs> I did wear I'm talking it. about riding through <laughs> it. 
Um, I think uh, most people who do an African trip, you know, they they have to go through a, you know some very bad roads, and and a lot of them do get caught in the wet season, which I did because I was a bit too slow to get out of it. Um, significant about Africa is that well, it is a long, it is many countries, it's many different uh, conditions, um, and many different types of people. So, uh, and of course, it still has. And this is a long time. This is 40 years after I did it. And things have changed in various countries. But it still still has a significant amount of of hardship if you're traveling on a bike. You, you know, they are, they, this, the Sahara is still there. Um, I think there's some better roads there now than there were when I went through. But um, this, you still have to, to contend with that that part of it, the sand and the, the heat. Or, and then the uh, the Congo, as far as I'm concerned, that as far as I know, there's bad roads in the in the Congo that um, you have to go through. Um, so yeah, uh, um, and then, well, significant. Then you've got when you once you get down to um, southern Africa, uh, you've got the big game parks. Uh, you can go and sit. Well, I saw wild animals. You know, actually, really in the wild. But um, you've got all these game parks you can go to, and then. Uh, I don't know. When I was there in southern Africa, of course, there was apartheid and there was UDI in Rhodesia, which is now called Zimbabwe. Um, so there was a lot of different cultural things happening. Um, so everything to me was significant. You know, it was very interesting. Have you been back since? No, I haven't. I haven't been able to. Um, well, I, I went back after this journey um, after this particular journey, I did go back, but I lived, I, I stayed for a while in Southwest Africa in what's now called Namibia. And I spent some time there, I spent a year or, or so in Southwest Africa. And that was, um, that was a different story. That's another story, <laughs> another breakdown. <laughs> when you're doing all these trips, how do you finance yourself? How do you raise your money to head off on one adventure, stay on the adventure and then go on to the next one? Because you've been doing this your whole life. Well, for this particular one, I was working three jobs before I left. I was I was doing a driving job during the day. I was being a barmaid in the evenings, and in, and at the um, over the weekends, I was um, I was sewing. I was making leather um, waistcoats and selling them. So you know, people think that you yeah, it must be rich, but it's been the same throughout my life. If I'm going to go on a trip. I work hard for it and I save money. I mean, I think I said in the last interview, I don't eat much. I don't drink much. Well, sometimes. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> and that's <so>. another story. <laughs> so there you go. It, you, you, and it's the same with all the overland travellers. They'll all tell you the same thing. They, they work hard for it before they go. They save up their money. Um, some people have um, property that they rent out while they're away and they get an income from that. Um, and it's a matter of, well, you know, I haven't got a new car. I haven't got any children. I haven't got a house anymore. What do you do? You know, I'm sure you know how people, it's priorities of, um, of spending money. You know, for those who don't know your story, I mean, you've traveled your whole life and you've always been going from one adventure to another. And that's why I asked about how do you finance it? Because I think you're exactly right. People think that you have a lot of money or you've got some sort of some sort of income. But you said you work three jobs. What you're doing is like you're you're um, you're not you're not sort of living. What you're doing is you're actually doing everything you can to save for that adventure. Your life is on the adventures, isn't it? I, I don't know. I mean, I've always been interested in music and wherever I've lived, where I've, wherever I've lived in between time, I haven't been on the road continuously. 
there have been times where I've been home for one, two, three years. I haven't gone away on, on anything. Um, I've always had a home base. People tend to think that Linda's a nomad. Well, I'm certainly not a nomad. I've always had a home somewhere. And at the moment now where I live in, in Port Lincoln, um, I, I have lots of interests. In fact, I haven't even got a bike on the road at the moment. Um, and I'm not sure of the next time I will. Uh, you know, I'm very involved in my folk music. I've got two, two little groups that I play with and um, I, uh, I, you know, I go, I play table tennis, I, I do spinning, I, um, I, I'm an art, you know, I'm an artist and I do my writing. So my, my week is full up with lots of other things. Um, and if I, this, this adventure, this last um, one was planned. I was away for, I was actually away for six months this time because I went to South America for three months um, to explore there. And then I went back to Europe to, um, to see my family in England and to go back and find my friends in Spain. And then I just hired cars, you know, that was just going back and, and, and really reconnecting with people. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I go on adventures, but uh, and I have been doing it, you know, for fifty odd years. But I, but I'm not always on the road. I'm, I have met other people who, who are on the road, um, but I don't know. None, none of them are seventy. <laughs> not. For, <laughs> um, Last we talked, you were talking about getting a Honda C90 or something. Yeah, I've got 110. I've got a, a little posty bike, and I have got it here now. I bought it just before I left on this trip. And uh, my friends are helping me. Ross, that's here now, he's he's got one, and there's another lady here who's got one, and she's very good as a mechanic. And we we're going to fix my little my little one ten up. Um, I was going to do another trip this year, but uh, it, it's been postponed till next year. I'm far too busy with promoting the book. Um, and yeah, that'll be good. I'll, maybe next year I'll be be back sort of on the road again. But that'll be just probably in, just in Australia. So the book's about your adventure going from uh, 1974 to Africa. Give us an anecdotal story from the from the book. Wow, wow! There, are, there are there are so many. Hang on, I've, I I'll I'll just have a quick look. All right, okay. Listen, I'll read the I'll read the first the very first page. Okay, which is the the prologue, the sort of introduction, um, and you have to uh, okay. The air was hot and sticky, only to be expected in this tropical climate. Thick vegetation each side of the track prevented any view of the surrounding countryside. It was like riding through a never-ending tunnel of green. Hour upon hour, I had been battling with the rocky, potholed surface that passed for a road. For a little while, I managed to pick up speed to 25 miles an hour and then came to a halt surveying a particularly rough patch through which to pick my path. A rustle came from the bushes and then, suddenly, a dark figure rushed out into the open, running towards me. The man was semi-naked with flashing eyes and a mop of wiry African hair. He approached, waving a panga and screaming. I sat frozen astride my heavily laden motorcycle. On this particularly rough stretch, I could not just open the throttle and go. Heart beating wildly, I sat, awaiting my fate as the man came closer, gurgling unintelligible words. As calmly as I could, I fixed a broad smile on my face and thrust forward a gloved hand in a gesture of friendship. How do you do? My name is Linda. I'm so pleased to meet you and it's a lovely day, isn't it? 
The African stopped his gesticulating with the lethal-looking implement and ceased his cries. He looked at me with an expression of pure amazement and then turned and disappeared into the jungle. Shaking like a leaf, I fixed my attention back onto the track ahead and gingerly began a tentative forward motion. What on earth am I doing here? I asked myself. Why did you not turn around at that point? <laughs> is that, is that, <laughs> I was too late. <laughs> is that your indicator, though? You get there and you run into that. I mean, that's no, that's you turn time. On my, on my BMW, it was before indicators were even made. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Tell us, what do you think is the the uh, most important aspect of travel? What what is it that you take with you that gets you through? Like smiling to that guy and, and holding your hand out in a situation where you're possibly going to end up dead <laughs> or worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what, what do you take with you that, that you think is your best tool? Well, you have to take, you have to take a positive attitude, very, very open-minded. And uh, um, I think I've got a lot of initiative, you know, sort of intuition um, about good people and bad people and when you have your own own vehicle whether it be a bike or a car or whatever if you feel you're in a bad situation you can you know hopefully get on your bike and go I say in that particular situation it was a bit tricky but um I think the main thing is to be open-minded uh and to just take things as they come and not go looking for trouble there are lots of places that it's not a good idea uh, to go in in any country, you know, not areas that that have got problems, and um, uh, and unless you're really really looking for a, you know that sort of adventure, I think it's better if you if you just take it easy and and go where where the best places to go are. But you're handling things differently too, because you wouldn't have done that at home. If somebody came running at you like that in the street, you probably would have, would have jumped off your bike and ran for cover. So you're you're handling things a little differently than at home, aren't you? Well, I, I couldn't, there was nowhere for me to go <laughs> in that situation. Um, yeah, I mean, you're not at home. You're in a, a different culture. You're in a, a different environment. You can't, you have to, and you're on your own. You haven't got the the backup of people that speak the same language or have the same culture around you. So you, you just have to play it by ear. I'm just wondering if, if sometimes when we're in situations like that where we don't have those resources to back us up, we can't turn and, you know, and yell to somebody to call the police or whatever, if life doesn't turn out good, probably better than if we had those, those things available to us. Right there, you had an experience, off he went. You must have had other experiences where you ran into things where they turned out to be good experiences only because you were forced to stay and deal with them. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're right there, Jim. That's what. That's it. You you don't realise that uh, sometimes you miss out on things because you hand over something to somebody else. Um, if you're forced to deal with it yourself, you you find that you can. But uh, as I say, you know, just try and look for the good good parts of uh, of things. I mean, I had <laughs> plenty of things go wrong during this trip, uh, as far as the bike was concerned. But I, you know, I, I things came out of it really. It turned out really well. Well, for instance, what do you do when your bike breaks down? Do you do your own repairs? I can do a certain, I could on that old BMW, I could do a certain amount myself because um, it hasn't got all, all this, you know, electronic rubbish. Uh, in fact, you can do it without, even without a battery altogether on this because it's, it was kickstart. And if the battery packs up, you can still get it going. Um, you might not have lights, but then, you know, you don't need, really need them very much if you, as long as you're not going around in the dark. Um 
I could do a certain amount, and I took, I did take a certain amount of spares with me, which was which was good. Uh, I did need them, and um, I could strip it down to a certain point. There were things that I couldn't do myself, and uh, but I was lucky that I found people that would help me. Um, I mean, at one stage, the the main bearings went in when I was in Kenya. And there was a guy there who um, worked in, uh, he was a Peace Corps worker, an American guy. And he uh, he was teaching, um, actually teaching mechanics and things in a school in Mombasa. Uh, and he made up the, the BMW tools that we didn't have to completely strip the bike down. Um, and the, the main bearings were 6207s, which you can get for any tractor. <laughs> uh, so they're very easy to get hold of. And, and so we, we, we did it, you know. And there were, there were other times where, um, yeah, I, oh, all sorts of things went wrong. Um, but people came up with the spares. It was amazing. You know, um, in Africa at that time, um, the missionaries and the police used these old BMWs. So there were spare parts around if I could track them down. And I did have to have actually something sent out from UK. I had the suspension units I had to get, um, they went, I had to get the suspension units sent out from UK. But, you know, it, it works. You know, you get, you might have to ha- be stuck in one place for a while, but then you, you, find, you meet other people. You have more interesting time um, connecting with those people in that place. So, um I could do a certain amount on the bike and I could maintain it myself. I could do the oil changes and check the tappets and the, you know, the plugs and, and, um, I'd never actually mended a puncture before. (laughs) And I had to amend a puncture in the middle of a game park where I wasn't really supposed to be on a motorbike. And I had to do that by myself, but, um, I did it. And you certainly had yeah. the motivation there to learn quick. Yes, I did. Cause I was about to be eaten by a lion. Otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in the book? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to read that. <laughs> uh, you know what's funny is you mentioned about how, you know, the old bikes, you could work on them before you have all the electronics and everything. But didn't you spend a lot more time working on those old bikes that were so, quote unquote, easy to repair compared to, I think you had a Yamaha recently. Didn't you find you spent less time working on that than you did on the old bikes? Um. Well, I suppose so. Because <laughs> it, it, it comes up a lot. A lot of people say that, you know, with the older technology, you could fix it, you know, with a, a hammer and a file. That's great. But, uh, you know, I think you spend a lot more time working on it than you do with the, the new stuff. I mean, I, I know that if you have an electrical problem with a new motorcycle, well, you're just done. That's it. But um, mm. I think there is mm. a certain amount of credibility has to be given to at least some of the electronic components anyway, because they tend to be very reliable. Mm. Well, yes. <laughs> I was in Santiago just recently, and Johnny Motos is the guy that looks after all the um, all the overlanders that come through Santiago to do South America. And he said, "Oh, he says BMWs are keeping me in business." <laughs> he said, "All these all these new BMWs with their electronics." He says they always break down. Oh so. no, that's not, that's not good for everyone who thinks that the, when they buy the BMW, they've got <laughs> yeah. the world solved. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Well, Linda, thanks very much for talking to me. I appreciate it, and I look forward to getting your book. Yes. Well, I hope you do. Um, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, Yeah, and you can probably find out all the lies I tell. (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) Okay, well, it's lovely to talk to you, Jim, and I hope um, your listeners enjoy the talk, and uh, hopefully um, 
hopefully I'll listen to a few more talks from other people as well. Uh, by the way, I'll just mention that um, if anyone goes into my website, which is uh, lindaB.id.au, there was um, there was an interview done by a woman in Santiago, another motorcy- female motorcyclist, and um, she she did a great interview. She did it in English, but she's put Spanish subtitles on it for the Spanish uh, people in Chile. And she she ferreted around and got a lot of photos off my Facebook. She put that in the back in the background, and she did a, an excellent job. So if anyone actually wants to to see that, that's that's up on on the, in my in my website. LindaB.id.au. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Linda. Okay, thanks very much, Jim. Cheers, then. And that was Linda Boutherstone-Bick, and you can find her new book, Into Africa with a Smile, on Amazon. It's available as a Kindle or a paperback version, and her other books are on there as well. And uh, Linda gave us a note after we talked about this um, for this show. She was saying that um, an important fact that she forgot to mention was that, that when she went to Africa on this trip that she wrote about, she didn't understand a lot of the political things that were going on, a lot of the, the different things that would affect her journey in the countries. And only afterwards, when she's researching things, did she find all kinds of, of little uh, side stories um, that uh, made their way into the book. Anyway, so a lot of those are in the book. I think it's going to be a great read. And of course, we're going to have a link to it in our show notes. Using the promo code ARR for Giant Loop is going to get you free shipping if you're in the U.S. Giant Loop Moto, it's known for really tough, durable bags that hang onto your bike no matter what. They've got a reputation for that. Really, really tough bags. They've got a brand new bag set out now I want to bring to your attention called Round the World Panniers. And if you go to their website, giantloopmoto.com, you can click on their featured products. Uh, I think they've got a few spots on there where it's on the website. But these panniers, basically they look like aluminum panniers, um, except they're soft luggage, but they look really tough. They've got three big straps across the top. It looks like they're made for what we do, riding our bikes hard. It's got the great big blue waterproof logo on it, which I love that Giant Loop has on there because they make great waterproof luggage. Have a look at it. The other thing I want to mention, and I've mentioned before, was their gas bag that they have out. Anyone running like an F800 or anything with a small gas tank, basically anything other than a a KLR or maybe a, a GS Adventure, it's a fabric gas bag and you can roll it up basically and stick it in your gear. You can put it anywhere. It's got a whole bunch of loops on it. It can be fastened anywhere on the bike. And then anytime you need that extra fuel, you just fill it up and it gets you further. I really think that is a, a great thing to look at. Giantloopmoto.com. Use the promo code ARR and let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about chains and getting more out of your chain, really, because that's what I'm after right now. I'm about to replace a chain and sprocket set of my bike. And quite frankly, I'm sick of it. I don't want to do it anymore. And I know you people out there with shaft drives are probably going to tell me, get a shaft drive. But honestly, my my chain set may be expensive, but it's certainly not the price of a shaft drive. Let's leave that argument for the forums. Before we go over and talk about that, I want to talk about the Good Adventure Company. The Good Adventure Company has been set up all in the name of raising money for sustainable charities. They take the profits from everything they do. These are people who work at jobs already, and they give them to charities. That's the whole idea behind it. So when you buy from them, you sort of get that warm, fuzzy feeling that your money is going to help somebody. I mean, I I think it's just an absolutely great setup. 
I saw a bunch of comments and things from their trip that they did into Mexico not long ago, and people had an absolute blast on this trip. There's one coming up called the Navajo Nation. It's May 17th to 20th, so I encourage you, have a look at what they're offering. Another trip is August 6th to 12th, the Colorado Backcountry Adventure. They've got bike rentals, and they sell all soft luggage, Giant Loop, Wolfman, Endurastan, and they sell hide-no-tires. Use the promo code ARR, you'll get 10% off your purchase, good-adv.com. Now, you got to ask yourself, how often do you clean and oil your chain on your motorcycle? Be honest now. Do you actually stop at the recommended intervals and and uh, clean your chain all down and oil it up? Somehow, I highly doubt it, you know, and especially if you're riding much dirt. I'll bet you're just like a lot of us. You're just going to squirt some oil on it or whatever you're using to lubricate your chain, and away you go. But it could be costing you money, and saving you time, but it could be costing you money in the long run. Today we're going to talk about automated chain oilers, particularly Scott Oiler, because we have Matt Ennen on from Scott Oiler, who's going to talk about at least their systems. But oilers have been around for a long time. You can certainly make them yourself. You can buy the different makes and models that are out there. But we're going to just talk about the concept of it and what it could possibly do to extend the life of your chain. Matt Ennen is the marketing manager for Scott Euler. Scott Euler is out of the UK, but Matt is actually in Germany um, where he works there marketing their products. Apparently they have a big market in Germany for the automated oiling systems. And Matt certainly knows his way around. He's been with the company for about five years. My name is Matt Ennen. I am the marketing manager for Scott Euler Automatic Chain Oilers. We are a small company based in Glasgow in Scotland. I'm actually from Germany. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with Scott Oilers for the last five and a half years, and it kind of worked well. I came straight out of university. They were looking for someone to work in marketing, and it's actually that for Scott Euler, Germany is the biggest market, so it was a, a perfect fit. What is a chain oiler? Basically, the the concept of chain oilers is quite old. I mean, you had like old Triumphs that would basically get the engine oil straight through a hose onto the chain. So you had the the hot engine oil going onto your chain, which was obviously very messy. And you had lots of Triumph customers basically just just turning that off or clamping hoses off just because it was was in the old ages when uh, Triumph was going down that route. But for us, and I think it was um, the the founder of Scott Oiler, Fraser Scott, he was, I think, the, one of the first ones looking at chain oilers from a different perspective because he was riding down from Glasgow to Manchester, so that's around 300 miles, um, to see the girl of the time and um, was doing this on his host his old Norton, and um, he was just going through chains like crazy. He wouldn't really have time to spend with his girlfriend. He would just come, arrive there, get the chain off, had to kind of soak it in duck grease and, and then put it back on. So he actually looked at the whole idea of creating a, a custom, a self-made chain oiler, and to um, activate it, he looked at uh, a vacuum connection so that the the, the chain oiler would activate with the, the motorcycle starting. But, I mean, today there's other options. We have other options. Other companies have other options. The um, idea with the chain oiler is that instead of using your normal 
spray loop, what you usually use right now, you either use wax or some kind of spray. And the idea is that you spray it onto your chain and it's staying on the chain for a certain amount of time, protecting your chain um, from the environment, lubricating it at the same time. Um, there was there's obviously a lot of of um, innovations in the the kind of industry in the chain industry and what you now have on all modern motorcycles are o-ring chains so that means that when you look at a chain it's kind of the the links of a chain are um, combined with a, a pin and then the old chains where you didn't have an o-ring that's where all the the grease and the dirt and the water would get into and that's what would wear out your chain and yeah, the thing with with chain um, oilers, uh, you know, that that's really nothing all that new. Really, it's been around ever since we we started making machinery with chains. It's a total loss system, but it used to be for, as you're saying right there, chains that weren't internally lubricated. And so that's a big difference. You would have had to. You were mentioning about him taking uh, about Fraser Scott taking his chain off and having to to bake it in oil. That's to try and to get some sort of lubricant impregnated yeah. into the surface so that it would last a certain period of time, which clearly you know wasn't enough. So nowadays, most of our modern chains have these these O rings in them that that have them sealed inside. So the grease is actually sealed in. And of course, that that begs the question as to why do you have to oil the chain then as well if the lubricant is sealed in? Yeah. And, and that is a common question. Basically, what happened is that you actually, you do actually extend the life of a chain much longer. And it's experiments that we have done and other people have done is basically if you get your chain straight from your, your chain manufacturer or you have a new bike, you can actually ride around a thousand miles on this initial grease that is on the chain. But what will happen is that as this grease washes off, it's going to be dirt and grit from the road, maybe sand, um, just basically lying on top of your chain. And through the rotation of the chain, through the interaction with the sprockets, what happens is that all these little particles get grinded down into a sandpaper-like grinding paste. And that is not what you want to have on your chain because what happens is it gets in between your O-rings and it starts wearing away the O-rings. And once you have one O-ring that fails, that's then your entire chain failing very fast. Of course, the old saying, the, the weakest link is the one that's going to let you down or, or begin to let you down. And it, it sort of always makes me wonder with this because the, the chain is set up, your crossbar is is in there, and then around the crossbar is almost like a, a loose collar that sits there with the two O-rings on the outside. And inside that collar, between the collar and the bar, is that lubricant they put in right from the factory. And that's what you were just talking about, that staying in there. If it's those O-rings seal the lubricant in, if they, would they manage to keep it in, that would be great. Clearly they don't. And at that point, you think it would almost be sealing out any oil that you're putting on from when you're spraying your chain. Is that the case? Yeah, yeah, it does. Basically what you do either with an automatic chain oiler or with your normal um, lubricant is what you do is you lubricate the O-ring. So you actually make sure that it's protected against the environment. It's protected against UV um, because especially if these O-rings on the outside dry out, then they start to crack and fall apart. And that's why like, lots of people just kind of lubricate their chain. They just spray another layer on top of it as they kind of think about it and remember. But what you should really do, and this is something we always say, if you're happy with your chain maintenance routine, then that's fine. But what you should really do is 
you should clean your chain before you spray on the next layer to actually make sure that you get rid of all the dirt and grit that is on your chain and kind of give those o-rings a bit of love and that they are well looked after. Yeah, and that's where I'm going with this because I think the misconception is for a lot of people when you look at a chain is that you're lubricating it because you see a steel sprocket and you see the steel parts in the chain and you figure that where they mesh, that's where you need the lubricant. But in fact, the lubricant doesn't really stay there very long at all. What you're what you're doing is what you're saying is you're doing preventative maintenance on those O-rings to try and stop them from failing, really, to initially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is obviously there is the interaction between the sprocket and the um, the chain, but that's only a very small part um, of the, the force. The actual force is actually um, transferred in the pin, like you say, in inside of the chain where it is protected. And as long as it is protected, that's fine because the, the loop that the manufacturer put in there is actually really good. And a really good manufacturer um, stock chain can, can last, depending on what kind of bike you have, between twenty to 60,000 miles. So basically the idea is we're trying to put a little bit of lubricant on for the chain and sprocket interaction and the rest of it's going to lubricate those O-rings, keep them in good condition so they don't end up failing on us. Now, you said that initially that those O-rings, if they're not greased, they're going to last about a thousand, was it miles or kilometers? And this is like the, the thousand miles is what we found with tests when you, you know, when you buy a new chain and it's covered in this manufacturer's grease Um I mean, what all the, the bike manufacturer manuals say is you should really lubricate and clean your chain every 300 to 400 miles. Yeah, that's an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> for, for, nowadays nobody wants to do maintenance. I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself because I, I really enjoy riding, so I'd rather ride than work yeah. on my bike if I can avoid it. But every time I have to replace my sprockets and I look at the, my, my sprockets and chain setup is, is pushing $300 and it's like, this really hurts. So my question to you is, if I was to install an automatic oiler, what can I expect out of my chain? I'm getting about 30,000 kilometers out of a chain right now, and I do a lot of dual sport riding, so there's a lot of dirt and garbage in there all the time. I do my best to keep... No, I don't do my best to keep <laughs> it clean. I, I, that's, that's just a complete lie. I do try every now and then to clean it, let's just say that. But what could I expect out of it? Um, yeah, it's like at the moment, it's basically like two points that automatic chain oilers can offer you is on the the one side you might even sometimes have days where you you might even do more than 300 miles or 300 kilometers so and you don't really want to carry around a chain of spray loop or even some kind of mechanism to to clean the chain or you don't have the time or you come home and you really don't want to do it so the whole kind of the hassle and the time that you spend maintaining your chain and like you say, to be honest, we're all really bad at it, like just looking after the chain. I, I only know a handful of people that actually stick to the, the recommended regime of doing it um, vigorously every 300 miles or kilometers. So you have this kind of convenience that you can actually just you, you have a look outside of your window. You see it's a great day. You just want to go out riding and you don't want to think about, oh, when was the last time I lubricated my chain? And in terms of the other point is, yeah, the, the other point is um, the chain life and the sprocket life will be um, increased because basically what happens is with automatic chain oilers is you can use, you actually end up with a cleaner chain and sprockets because the oil you usually use is non-tacky and that means you have less dirt and grit staying on your chain and that means you have a 
a longer lasting uh, chain in sprockets. And we've seen everything from two to three times the life of your chain and sprockets up to seven times the, the life of your chain sprockets, what you usually have. Wow. Now, the the difference between the internal lubrication, which is supposed to be sealed and, and be uh, reused continuously, yours is 100% loss. But I understand you have that really dialed down to the amounts, like you're not just running oil onto the chain, which I guess would work too, but you're going to end up with everything soaked in oil. Yeah, I mean, you've got the old idea of having a fully enclosed chain, and this is somewhere like an in-between. But uh, the idea with the Scott Oiler is that you you basically have an initial initial film of oil on your chain and then you just top it up. And what we recommend is one drop of oil per minute. That's where you kind of start, but you get a lot of people that maybe have it dialed down to one drop every two minutes. So you're not putting like tons and tons of oil on your, on your chain or on the road. It's actually very minute levels of oil. And what is happening is basically with your traditional spray chain it's very tacky and the only reason it's tacky is because it has to stay in your chain well if we say we can always top up that that amount of chain of oil on your chain we can actually use something that is non-tacky and then when you have dirt and grit come on the chain and actually land on it it's not going to stick to your chain and through the rotation and through the centrifugal forcing forces the oil will actually kind of encapsulate the dirt and then take it away as it flies off, off your chain and sprockets. How much oil are we looking at around the bike at that point? Um, it just kind of depends on, on where you ride, how you ride, how often you, you, you clean your chain, how you want your chain to look. There's some feedback on the internet of people saying that um, automatic chain oilers are really messy, but the truth is it's not going to be messier than your normal spray lubrication because that gets flung off as well. The big thing is I'm thinking about is is, is trying to get more life out of the chain. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, it'd be worthwhile having a, a little bit of oil drip off to get more life out of it and, and ultimately cost me less money you know, per kilometer that I'm riding. Now, I understand you have a, a couple of different systems. Can you run us through your lineup? Yeah, at the moment we have two systems. The, the first system is the V system. That's for vacuum. So this is what Fraser Scott developed in the 80s, and it's just a um, kind of a development of that. We've um, continued working on this system. It, it operates by the engine vacuum, so that works with both carbureted and fuel-injected engines. And as you kind of start the bike, it lifts a valve and starts oiling your chain. And then in 2009, we brought out a new system, an electronic-operated system, which works of an accelerometer. So it's basically sensors as you move the bike. When you start off the bike, it actually just fires up and shows you all the control, has a nice handlebar display that shows you how much oil level you have, shows you the flow rate. And then, but only as you move off, it will start lubricating your chain. And you actually have settings as to set when you want it starting. So the idea is if you're in slow moving city traffic or you're kind of stuck at traffic lights. It won't over-oil your chain. And that actually then cuts down on the kind of excess oil that you use as well. And of course, the idea of the vacuum-operated one to begin with, the reason you have that valve in there is so that when you park your bike or leave it sit somewhere, it's not going to continually drip out oil until the reservoir is empty or, or have a tap that you have to manually shut off. So that makes it fully automatic. Yeah, all our systems are automatic. So that was the idea. We kind of want to make the life 
for the riser easier and more enjoyable. We don't want you to think about your chain or your chain maintenance. We want you to actually go out and enjoy the road. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. That was Matt Ennen, the marketing manager for Scott Euler. And uh, you can find out more about Scott Euler by tripping by their website, scottoiler.com. But that's not the only thing you can do for, as far as an automatic oiler. I think there's, there's other models out there, other manufacturers out there. But you can also make one yourself. There are people who have made them themselves and posted on the blogs uh, and different spots on the internet where they've just developed their own. If you think about it, it's not a really difficult system. It's, it's a pretty simple concept. Really, you just want a way to automatically start and stop the oil, which is a, a valve that would work off your vacuum. You could do it electrically. Um, you run a hose down and get some sort of nozzle going onto your chain. If you're interested in making one yourself at home or just at least curious at what other people have done, drop by our website. Look at the show notes for this episode. We've got some links in there for some projects that we've found that people have done making their own automated chain oilers. But whether you buy one or whether you make one, if you think about it, an automated chain oil, if it if it does this, and I haven't tried it myself, so I don't really have firsthand proof, but I have heard a lot of stories about it. If you can get double, triple, or more uh, life out of your chain and sprocket set, well, first of all, it saves you a lot of maintenance time. It saves you a lot of time pulling over to tighten your chain on the side of wherever. But in the long run, it could save you a lot of money, depending on what you're paying for the kit. I don't know how expensive the kits are offhand, but if you made a kit, of course, the expense is a lot less. And as far as when we're riding adventure bikes and we're getting into dirt and a lot of rough areas, you tend to not worry as much about a bit of oil dripping off as you would if you were, you know, riding a, your Harley Cruiser and, you know, you wouldn't want any drips of oil anywhere. So, it could be a, a really good investment for you. Don't forget to trip by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Like I said, check the show notes for this episode and look at those links we have in there. It might give you some inspiration for building your own automated chain oiler. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. that about wraps it up that's it that's a day we've done it I think we covered a lot in this one that was a lot of fun doing it and, and of course as always we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it because we certainly put our best into these shows and I hope you're entertained by them I want to give a special thanks of course to our co-producer Elizabeth Martin who helps make the whole thing happen and the advertisers that support this show because that's what makes it possible for us to do this it takes an awful lot behind the scenes to put this together and there's some very long days a lot of hours goes into it so we we certainly appreciate that. 
I want to give a shout out to those people who have come in and give us donations. We really appreciate it. It's going a long way. We really need it too. So um, if you haven't already or you feel like you can do something, drop by the website, click on the donate button and give it what you can. And, rem- and remember that anything over $10, I think, gets you a gift sent back to you from us, and which we're really happy about doing. We, we just love doing that. I love seeing those things go out in the mail. Don't forget, we have a different show as well. We've got ARR Raw, Adventure Rider Radio Raw. That is a once a month show, roundtable discussions. We've got Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. We've got Sam Manicom, who is an author and world traveler, very well known. I'm sure you know who he is. Graham Field, same thing, author, world traveler. Um, we have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks from Australia. They're also on. Everybody's on monthly, and we just have a fantastic time doing the show. I mean, it is a lot of fun. you got to listen to it. While you're listening to this show, probably about the exact same time, the Raw show should be out. So make sure you drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Raw button. Subscribe separately because it's a different show from this. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week.